Paratooth Radio is a proud member of Evergreen Podcasts on KillerPodcast.com. Since the fall of man, a war has raged between good and evil. Over the centuries, this war has distorted the truth. Now the truth is perceived as lies, and lies acknowledged as truth. To this day, the battle continues as we investigate and debate the truth behind the history and mystery of the universe. We are Paratruth Radio. Monsters. Few believe in the cryptids, and many disregard them. Whether they exist or not, the Monster Book by Nick Redfern may cause you to rethink your stance. Now Paratruth presents the Monster Book with special guest Nick Redfern. Carry on my wayward son, there'll be peace when you are done. Lay your weary head to rest Don't you cry no more What's up folks? Welcome to a brand new episode of Paratruth Radio My name is Eric And I'm Justin. Oh, that song plays everywhere he goes. <laughs> Every room he walks into, boom, Barbie Girl theme music begins. It's the weirdest thing. <laughs> I'm a Barbie girl <laughs> living in a Barbie world. Well, I understand. I understand. <laughs> you know, a lot of us are made of plastic uh, nowadays. Fantastic. <laughs> Until the plastic goes pop and then things aren't so nice anymore. Yeah. Anyway. So, we were off last week, folks. Uh, yes, we were. We're sorry to disappoint you. Uh, we did play a past episode, not one of our past episodes, but a past episode that we did with somebody else. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, it was a fun, I remember that, 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 uh, particular show that we did. It was fun. It was a fun discussion, you know. It's kind of nice jumping onto other, uh, networks or people's shows and taking over as hosts. We're not supposed to take over as hosts, but you know. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's always fun to get away from Paratruth Radio and see what other people are doing and how they're carrying themselves and their show and what they're representing and presenting and so on and so forth. So always a fun time. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as we did. But nonetheless, today, this week, we're back. Yep. What's up, folks? Glad to be here. Uh, I'm back in Lynchburg, Virginia. For the last month and a half, I was in Cleveland. So, little change of scenery again. We're back to the original, as you can see. Um, but that's okay. The good thing is, we won't have doors shutting upstairs. Dogs. <laughs> that's a good thing. 
won't have dogs barking. We may have a cat jump up here. I don't know. It's a little warm in here, so she's on the cold floor. Hopefully she stays there. Uh, yeah. We don't have people sneezing or coughing or uh, talking upstairs or yelling to each other upstairs or anything that's happening upstairs. Run dogs and animals and cats running across. I mean, wild beasts in that house over there. But uh, <laughs> nonetheless, we are back to good old silence. Kind of like what we're going to be talking about today. <laughs> kind of. Kind of. A little bit. <laughs> so, first week, pretty much back on the job, Justin. How does it feel? It's pretty good. I am pretty happy with what I'm doing. I toss packages for a living, so it's it's a good, easy pace for me. And uh, they already are going to up me up to the next level uh, just under career, so I'm looking forward to that as well. How's it awesome. back being in uh, Lynchburg? It sucks. <laughs> uh <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I've got a lot of read. I'm not good at reading, folks. Uh, fun fact: Monday uh, it was my first class, my first day back to school, my first day of the last three months of my school career. Thank God. Um, it took me two hours to read forty pages. Shouldn't take that long to read forty pages, but I don't read. I can't read very well. Not that I don't read. I just can't read very well. Uh, and for my OCD reasons, sometimes I have to repeat certain words or go over a line five or six times. is really annoying. So definitely a struggle. And I've got a lot of reading to do this semester, doing psychology. Um, if I'm not mistaken, Jerry was doing psychology. She was, yeah. Well, she was pursuing a bachelor's in um, yeah, counseling, uh, I believe. But Which means she probably took my classes at Liberty. <laughs> you know where I'm going here. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so you know, psychology classes, a couple biblical worldview classes, and uh, some sciences. Astronomy is one of them. Astronomy? Astrology? One of the two. Astronomy is the stars. Them. Astrology is Gemini, Pisces, that sort of thing. Ah, in that case, astro- astronomy. Yeah. Uh, stars. Stars. Even though those are zodiac signs, ast- astrology plays into right. that. Gotcha. Yeah, so that, that, that might be an interesting uh, course. But uh, it's going to be busy. It's already been. I'm tired already. It's Tuesday. I almost said it's Wednesday. It's Tuesday. It was Tuesday. It's Tuesday. The moment we're recording this, it's Tuesday. And it sucks. <laughs> I'm done. I'm ready to... Two days in, folks. <laughs> anyway, enough of my complaining. Some uh, quick little news before we jump into this uh, this episode. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I told you that I was coming down to Lynchburg for a weekend to shoot a film, that that film would be up. Well, I was made a liar. Um, no, no, no issue to anybody else. But the problem is, there we were given certain things that we had to use in the film. A prop, names of people, a certain ability that somebody had, such as painting in our case, and a specific line, one line of dialogue that we had to use. We were up for several nominations after the viewing. Oh, great. Awesome. Yeah. Turns out, two words within the line of dialogue that we had said were wrong. Two of the words are wrong. Therefore, we were disqualified. Could not go on. Our nominations were dropped. And uh, my the director 
my friend, decided to drop the film completely and shelve it. It will not see the light of day ever again. Sad news. On the other hand, the positive note is I talked to him. I am remaking the film. I'm rewriting the script. Similar in, in the way that it's presented, but completely different beginning and ending. Okay. Uh, much, much darker this time around. I know, guys. <laughs> I mean, you work in the paranormal <laughs> world. I mean, you gotta go dark. Uh, and we are pretty much set, it looks like, to start shooting the film at the end of October. Uh, looking at about three days shoot, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then, of course, moving on from there. It's a bigger, bigger budget, bigger script, a lot more detail, different cast, much bigger uh, crew, and more time, much more prep time. So currently so in the bring room, it to other festivals or yep, yep. The idea is to make it a new another festival piece, just like the revealed. So this is my new project, uh, one that actually just kind of jumped up, just kind of creeped up, and is like I realized being my first psychological thriller because that's what it is. I needed, you know having it handed over like that you know it just kind of played out I really wanted to direct this one yeah so <clears throat> we're going to go ahead and do that in October I've got my crew pretty much set minus one or two people uh, who I'm still looking for and cast that's not something we're going to worry about until Close the end of September it. probably once I get the script done but yeah but Unfortunately, folks, I can't tell you too much about it. Justin, you get to hear all about it some more about the story uh, after the show. So, just to make all of you jealous a little bit out there. <laughs> well, Justin anyway. always gets to hear stuff and usually gets to hear yeah. all my ideas as well, which yeah. I actually have one for, um, I don't know if it's going to be a short story or a, uh actual book, but I have a good okay. idea, too. Cool. Well, I look forward to hearing it after the show today. Um well, folks, with that said, we should probably get moving here because it is, we're already, you know, getting 10 minutes in. Right. Uh, so, folks, today we're talking about monsters. Go figure. We love monsters. <laughs> the monsters within and the monsters without and the monsters that have everything in the world and the ones that have nothing. Don't know what any of that that I just said means, but use it as you will. Uh, we're talking about cryptids, folks. Monsters, I think, is a very loose term, very broad. Yeah. Uh, can represent a number of different things. In particular, we're talking about cryptids, though. Uh, and all the information that we're going to discuss comes from a book called The Monster Book by our friend Nick Redfern. Uh, we are going to be having him on tonight, and we'll probably get him on in just a moment here. I think it's going to be a very interesting uh Episode just in the fact that I know we've all heard about cryptids. You guys have heard it from us a lot, but it's been a while since we've actually had someone on who's written a book about cryptids. It's been a while, a few months at least. Um, so you know, it's kind of fun. There are some new cryptids in the book. I think that we haven't really talked much about, so I'm interested right. in getting his input on some of that stuff um, <clears throat> and research to do for future episodes as well. Yeah. So, folks. Without further ado, why don't we go straight to the line with Nick Redfern. Nick Redfern, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, guys. I'm glad to have you back on for this uh, new book that we have here for you, The Monster Book. So uh, before we get started, what made you uh, do The Monster Book? Why this specific set of topics or creatures, I guess? 
Well, I mean, I think that probably the main reason was because, you know, there's, in the past there have been a number of books that are kind of a similar type, um, you know, like an A to Z style. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that, you know, always kind of grates on me a little bit is that very often they focus on all the well-known ones, you know, A for Abominable Snowman, B for Bigfoot, Y for Yeti, C for Chupacabra, and there's nothing wrong with that, you know, and I, and I do that in the book as well. But what I thought would be a good idea and that's when I um, spoke with Visible Ink Press, who published the book, was to do sort of a 200 A to Z entries on weird creatures, but to sort of give the reader, yes, the normal ones, the ones everybody knows, but also a lot of rarely touched on ones, ones that most people would know nothing about whatsoever. And... um, you know, and, and expose them to the fact that, wow, you know, this little town has this case and this little town has that case. And I think I think people like that when they, you know, they realize that there are so many weird creature stories out there that, you know, otherwise you wouldn't know a great deal about. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and like you said, you really covered some interesting uh, creatures here that I've never even heard about before. A lot, yeah, some a lot, of them. neither of us have heard uh, of before. <laughs> Which is surprising because we love cryptids and we love doing research on cryptids. So coming across some in your book that we've never heard of was, you know, really drew our attention. Uh, oh, cool. One that is really interesting to me, uh, just because it's almost like the child of a bat and a Sasquatch, <laughs> is the Basquatch. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that particular creature? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of um, weird creatures out there, but certainly the, this one that became known as Batsquatch, um, you know, is memorable for several reasons, one being, you know, the name obviously kind of really <laughs> stands out. Um, but the, the Batsquatch was is actually, although it sort of primarily revolves around one particular case, um, it's also one that where other people claim, well, I saw something just like that. And um, most of the reports of this creature come from the Pacific Northwest area, but not all of them. And people describe it as sort of um, like a like a like a Bigfoot in many respects, sort of hair-covered humanoid, but with these large wings. Hence the term bat, you know, bat squatch. Um And the, the wings aren't described as feathery, you know, they are sort of leathery and large. And um, in most of these cases, interestingly enough, you know, the witnesses are sort of driving down a road late at night and then suddenly this thing sort of swoops down in front of the car. And very often, it, and particularly in the classic case, it's almost as if it does it deliberately just to sort of instill fear in the person. You know, there's no sort of logical rhyme or reason or why these things appear it's almost as if it's like a like a theater for the for the witness you know mm-hmm. now is there any uh link from bat squatch to the like the thunderbird uh cases mm. at all well yeah i mean i think that that's an interesting question because if you look throughout the history of strange flying creatures in the United States. You know, you you have sort of several categories, but some of them do cross over. I mean, for example, you know, Mothman was described more like sort of a like a humanoid, but Mm -hmm. more bird-like. And then, 
you know, bat scratch. I said we had these more sort of leathery wings. And in South Texas, bordering on the on the Mexico border, uh, we get a lot of reports of things that sound weirdly like pterodactyls. And then, of course, you know, to get back to your question, there are these reports of huge birds or bird-like animals, like the thunderbird. And um, some of them seem are seen in the same locations, which suggests some sort of connection. And as some people have suggested. It may be there's some kind of like a shapeshifter in some respects. Mm -hmm. um, but then other ones, you know, they like Mothman, they seem sort of definitively in that shape all the time. And um, and I think the certainly the bat scratch would pretty much f sort of fall into that category. You know, it's one that's sort of unchanging, really. But... Um, I mean, the, the sort of the definitive case um, of bad scratch involved this guy named Brian Canfield back in 1994. Um, he was driving in the area, a place called Lake Capoin, uh, excuse me, Capoin, and um, it's in Washington State. And um, you know, his case was one that really sort of energised the community to sort of look more into these winged humanoid type creatures. Now, well, before we move on to another creature, I do want to step back real quick and probably should have been something I should have asked beforehand, but just a little more detail about yourself. Two-part question here. What exactly had gotten you into or interested into the, uh, the cryptids and the paranormal scene? And when doing research for this book in particular, how do you go about your research? Is it strictly Internet-based or do you actually go to these towns and interview people? Well, the first part, uh, when I was about um, six years old, my parents took me on a holiday to Scotland and we spent a day at Loch Ness. And uh, my dad told me the story of the Loch Ness Monster. And I've actually still got a couple of vague memories of, of him telling me the stories. We stood on the shore of this huge loch, which is about 22 miles long, a mile wide, and about 700 feet deep. Mm -hmm. and, and loch is just an, an ancient Scottish term for lake. It doesn't mean anything other than lake, really. Right. Um, and, you know, when you sort of told a story like that when you're sort of six years old, you know, it's a thousand monsters in the lock, you know, it's exciting and fun. And um, and as I got a few years older, I started reading books by people like Charles Berlitz and Brad Steiger, particularly, and John Keel. And, um, you know, it got me interested in sort of the wider issue of what these things are. And, you know, just... Ran, uh, read more on the subject, you know, watch movies and um, sort of combine that. And then when I finished school, I began working on a um, an entertainment magazine back in England. I used to do sort of um, the, the music columns and things like that. And after a few years, I thought, well, why not try and combine the background in journalism and use sort of journalistic techniques to investigate um, weird stuff. And to get to the, the second part, yeah, I, I do a lot of on-site um, investigations. The main reason being that I enjoy, you know, I enjoy road trips. I enjoy sort of hitting the road and investigating a mystery. And um, and that's actually one of the best ways to uncover information on some of these strange creatures. You know, you mentioned the Internet. Well, yeah, the, you can find a lot of information on the Internet about lake monsters like Algo Pogo or Champ or, you know, the Skunk Ape in Florida. But one of the best ways is, you know, you just go into the little town where there's a monster legend and you go from, like, the, the local gas station, the local store, the local bar, 
and you just say, hey, you know, I'm in town investigating the, the legend. What can you tell me? And people often say, oh, you know, you want to speak to Joe or you want to speak to Jim. And where's Jim? Oh, well, you know, he runs the gas station up the road. And, you know, so you have to be sort of a bit proactive and, and but it opens doors. And most of the time, people, when they know you're sort of genuinely interested, they're, they're sort of happy to share stories. So. Right. Cool. Yeah, that's really interesting and sadly i would love to travel the world to investigate stuff like that um all right folks uh we are going to go to our first break here you are listening to paratruth radio right here on the paratruth radio network we're talking to nick redfern about his book the monster book we will be right back after eric's random fact of the day now eric's random fact of the day Have you ever heard of the doorway effect? Neither have I. But according to FactSlides.com, the common experience of arriving somewhere only to realize you've forgotten what you went there to do is indeed called the doorway effect. This was Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotus, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, yeah, right? And, yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? <laughs> the Bigfoot thing is people have seen these, and, and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Chipotas. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. All right, folks, welcome back to Paratruth Radio. My name is Justin. And I'm Eric. And we're talking to Nick Redfern about his book, The Monster Book. Nick, uh, you know, we just talked about how you investigate these different beasties for the book. Now, one of my favorite things, and I'm glad it's in the book, is dragons. Are there mm-hmm. still cases of sightings to this day? Well, I mean, I guess a lot of it kind of depends on how you define a dragon. You know, the, the sort of typical image that most people have is like this huge fire-breathing type creature. Mm, right. Now, we don't really get those kind of reports today, but certainly in the distant past... There actually were reports that sort of would fit the classical description of something along the lines of a dragon. And, um, you know, that, that sounds sort of bizarre, you know, to a lot of people. However, you know, there are some cases where people have seen creatures that, you know, do look like dragons. And, of course, I often say to people that 
whenever there's a weird legend, there's usually some tri uh, some kind of truth behind it. Um, no matter you know if it's far more mundane or down to earth. Right. Uh, in some cases, it isn't mundane and down to earth. But uh, a good friend of mine uh, in England, named Richard Freeman, who's a former zookeeper, who I um, cite on a number of occasions in the book, and in relation to dragons, because he's sort of a, an expert on the mythology, folklore, and even the real life reports. And um, Richard has sort of looked into the idea as to whether or not in the distant past there could actually have been creatures that, you know, passed for what we call dragons and that may have become extinct, you know, um, well, perhaps surviving for a while in certain isolated pockets and, you know, generating our beliefs. So, um, you know, certainly the, the dragon still sort of lives on in the world of mythology and it's sort of like a grey area as to what extent you know, the, there's reality to it and if any of these kind of creatures could have still, you know, survived to sort of more modern times, if you like. Mm -hmm. Well, now, <clears throat> moving on from there, there, there's a creature that you do mention in the book that we've actually talked about and we actually did an entire show on this particular cryptid in the past and it's one known as the Wendigo. Uh, oh, yeah. Now, the Wendigo... I mean, obviously, in the book, it's in the monster book. It's known as a cryptid, and many people see it as a cryptid. But there are different views by certain peoples uh, and people groups, especially uh, in Native American lore, in which the Wendigo is actually a spiritual creature as opposed to, you know, a physical being. Uh, in your research, where does the line? Where's the line kind of drawn, and what is your kind of conclusion to it? <laughs> Well, the reason why I included things like the Wendigo in the book and other sort of weird creatures that might not be sort of fully flesh and blood is because, you know, it very much depends on how you define cryptozoology. Now, for most sort of mainstream cryptozoologists, they're looking for unknown physical flesh and blood animals. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't sort of consider myself to be a mainstream conventional cryptozoologist you know I kind of think outside the box and I think a lot of these phenomena that appear to be unknown creatures actually have a lot of paranormal and sort of even like a cult and supernatural overtones to them there's no doubt mm -hmm. about that that some of the, these things are far weirder than just flesh and blood animals that zoology hasn't classified yet and I think you know that the Wendigo is enough of a weird creature to include in the book because it has a few sort of cryptozoological overtones the idea of you know people talking about it seeing it in the forest and the woods and you know attack and kill people but you're right you know if you look at some of these legends some of them talk about how people who turn to cannibalism can be sort of can transform into these wendigos um, you have other accounts where sort of um shamanic people will sort of wear the the skin if you like or the hide of an animal and they can turn into a wendigo or you know the wendigo itself can transform somebody else into one or manipulate the mind of a person so you know i don't sort of shy away from pointing out in the book that you know in native american cultures the the wendigo plays a, a very large part but in, if we try and class it as just an unknown animal, or some people have suggested, you know, could it be based on ancient legends of Native Americans seeing Bigfoot, you know, which is an interesting mm -hmm. theory. But I think there are enough weird aspects to it that 
for me at least, suggests there's, there's some sort of paranormal aspect, regardless of how each of us sort of define what the word parano- uh, paranormal means. You know? mm-hmm. So uh, one other one that I actually came across uh, was Goatman a White Rock Lake. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh-huh. This is a one that we kind of touch on, the Goatman. Um, uh-huh. And... Uh, it's really interesting because there's so many different theories about what this specific creature is. You know, in folklore, the most common uh, character that you think of is Pan, the half goat, half yeah. man demigod. Uh, do you think that though all of that kind of contributes from the lore of Pan? Do you think people are just letting their imaginations go wild with that specific creature, or is there something to it? Well, I think there's something to it in the sense that people are clearly seeing something. I mean, I live just outside Dallas, and in this area alone, there are several uh, Goatman legends. The most famous one is Lake Worth, which is just outside the city of Fort Worth, which is about 30 miles from where I live. They have a legend there of um, the Lake Worth Goatman, which is described as sort of this upright, bipedal, um, creature that was described as like humanoid, but it had these sort of goatish protrusions on its head, some people said, and you know, it had sort of a, like an elongated face. Um, there's also a story from White Rock Lake in Dallas, uh, which is a large man made lake. Um, not many reports from there, but a couple. And there's just north of Dallas, there's a town called Denton, which has a, an old bridge called the Old Alton Bridge, and people claim to have seen the goat man sort of haunting the bridge but in sort of more like a supernatural fashion you know where you can find stories of haunted bridges all around the world you know Mm. Um, but there are some cases with particularly out at Lake Worth where people have come across strange footprints Um, people have actually seen in the area of Lake Worth which is heavily forested uh, I should stress uh, people have found these weird formations where branches and twigs have been placed into like pyramid formations and we find a lot of these where Bigfoot has been seen and uh, some people call them Bigfoot teepees as if or some people suggest that Bigfoot creates these as territorial markers you know these huge piles of torn off branches you know placed into Mm -hmm. sort of a pyramid shape and there's actually been uh, more than a few of those found out at at White Rock Lake I actually um, found one in 2005 with a friend of mine Ken Gerhard we went out there and found one then and um, you know they're just in the middle of nowhere where most people don't even go Um, so I do think there's a a phenomenon of the goat man but it's kind of like a lot of these others like the Wendigo too what we have is is a creature that seems to have the ability to straddle the physical flesh and blood world but also it's sort of totally at home it's sort of like a supernatural realm and sometimes the two cross paths I think and and we we experience what looks like a physical animal but we also experience it sort of vanishing or hypnotizing us or you know whatever Mm -hmm. now there's a lot of these sightings around the world Uh, whether it be the goat man or you know a sasquatch or werewolf or whatever we're seeing them all over the world and yet they're not really mainstream. You know, not a ton of people really believe in the creatures. It's really a select few when you look at the, you know, the whole of the population of the world. Uh, with that said, though, uh, 
based on where these stories are originating, you know, some of them originate or most of them originate from Europe, and then we have some American lore, and then those in Australia, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think that these creatures are actually being spotted if they exist, or is it more people are hearing stories and then thinking that they see these creatures, and then the story is, you know, built upon? Well, I mean, I think you always have that angle. You know, that inevitably happens when sort of strange mystery gets out. You know, there's like a people say, you know, it's a mountain lion loose in the area, and then everybody's mistaking somebody's Labrador dog or big pet cat for a mountain lion. You know, mm-hmm. that, that does happen. There's no doubt that you know the human imagination and the rumor mill and all this. You know, people are driving around town, you know, a bunch of kids drinking beer at midnight trying to find the mountain lion, that kind of thing. Right. You're always going to get that. You know, that's that's just part of our our nature and our culture. You know, we, we do that kind of thing. However, you know, I, I think the important thing to remember is that, like I said, in a lot of these cases, there's usually some sort of basis in, in reality, you know, regardless of what the creature is. And I think the important thing from my perspective to do is to try and look at these cases sort of objectively and, you know, and not just sort of sort of parrot fashion, you know, old folk tales, but actually try and get to the heart of them and see what was actually seen and is there evidence for it and were photographs taken, that kind of thing. And I think Mm -hmm. that allows you to sort of differentiate between something that remains a legend and something that has a bit more substance to it. Gotcha. Well, one thing that comes to mind uh is, you know, there's a lot of people that believe that cryptids are, like, hybrid cre- creatures that are made from human and animal DNA. Uh, one specific creature that's in the book is the Montauk monster. Uh, in, in your opinion, is do you think that is a possibility? Did you come any across any research that would hint at that at all, or is that just kind of hokum to you? Well, I mean, there have been a number of legends over the years, none of which I should stress have ever been fully verified, but, you know, there have been experiments. There's no doubt there's been experiments undertaken to try and um, crossbreed humans and and apes. I mean, a a Russian scientist, um, Ilya Ivanov, um, back at the turn of the 20th century, was someone who was heavily interested in the idea of sort of um, impregnating um, female gorillas and female chimpanzees with human sperm. Now, you know, although we're extremely close DNA-wise, we're also uh, different enough to prevent this from happening. But there are rumors that's happened. Now, the closest thing that I can think of that's sort of personally to me, what I've experienced, is that I've been on a lot of um, expeditions to Puerto Rico looking for the Chupacabra. And every time I've been there, I've heard stories about how there are supposedly like, underground labs on the island undertaking sort of bizarre fringe genetic experimentation to try and sort of genetically alter monkeys and apes into sort of killing machines that could be unleashed on the battlefield. You know, you imagine mm-hmm. the enemies coming towards you and you unleash the sort of super powerful chimpanzees, which are dangerous animals at the best of times, right. you know, particularly when they get older and they get cranky and violent. I mean, there's that terrible story a couple of years ago of a woman whose face was, you know, ripped off by a chimpanzee. You know, imagine something that's um, genetically altered to, you know, just kill. Uh, I've heard a lot of stories from Puerto Rico that some people think that's what the chupacabra is. It's like the result of 
weird genetic experiments. And, and part of the reason why that story surfaced is because there's actually a little island off the coast um, of Puerto Rico where for years they've been doing research into HIV, you know, which causes the AIDS virus. Oh. And they have a large population there of rhesus monkeys, which, you know, they use for experimentation. And these stories about rhesus monkeys have, have, have sort of been amplified on where now it's not just, you know, sort of known experimentation. There's nothing secret about the, you know, the AIDS program there. That's a, a long-standing one. But it sort of jumped from there that, well, that's not all that's going on. And, um, you know, people say, well, that's just urban legend, the idea that, you know, there's these other experiments. And, and it, maybe that is the case. But uh, I can say for sure that on Puerto Rico, a lot of people do believe the Chupacabra is some sort of genetic experiment that was either deliberately released or, you know, they escaped. Mm-hmm. And that, that's something that's, that's really interesting because I've talked about it on the show a couple of times. Uh, a buddy of mine who's in the military had a f- friend uh, or has a friend who also is in the military and happened to uh, relay a story to him about uh, a time when he, he was branched somewhere over in New Mexico area. And, and the area in which he was at, they were doing animal experimentation, supposedly, and the animals had gotten free. And when they did, there is uh, an announcement that went out throughout the town that's saying if you saw any animals with glowing eyes or oddly glowing eyes, that you're to shoot them on sight immediately. Uh, wow. Now, I don't... Yeah, I don't know how true that story is per se, but again, th- you know, this has come from a source that I trust. Um, but who's to say? I mean, if it's happening, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, we do get stories like this all over the place. And, you know, I think, like I said earlier, it is important to sort of sift through the fact, the fiction, and, you know, the urban legend, and then the rumors, the rumor mill, and so on. Um, but when you do that, I, I often find, you know, there's still something worth looking at. I mean, it's kind of like the Loch Ness Monster. I mean, there's countless reports, and for me, there's definitely something there. Um, the witness reports, you know, for me at least, suggest that's definitely the case, but we're still sort of trying to figure out what it is. And I think that's kind of like the one, you know, you're talking about maybe, that this, there's, a, there's a basis in reality that we have to sort of sift through you know the part that's the reality and the part that is you know everybody sort of getting excited and yeah. you know Chinese whispers and that kind of thing right right well uh, one thing I wanted to ask you just because there are so many creatures in this book what was your favorite or couple of favorite creatures doing the research on well, certainly one of them was a, a creature known as the Man Monkey, which was seen in, first in England in uh, January 1879 uh, in the English county of Steph- uh, Staffordshire, which is in the central part of England. Okay. And the reason why is because that's actually very close to where I grew up as a kid. And it's sort of an area you know, where history hasn't really changed. You know, I grew up in this little village where I was sort of in 10 miles of about five castles and three stone circles and an Iron Age hill fort, you know, it's like a really kind of Harry Potter type environment <laughs> where I grew up as a kid. And, um, and, but they, and right in the heart of this, you have this old canal called the Shropshire Union Canal, and it has this huge, quite mysterious looking bridge. It's like an old stone bridge, and it's surrounded by this huge woodland and overhanging trees, and it, it does look creepy. And since 1879, 
there have been reports of this large creature described sort of like a chimpanzee, very agile and slim, running very quickly and that basically sort of charges out the woods and terrifies people and then sort of vanishes again. doesn't sort of cause any trouble. It's almost like, you know, the old folklore tales of trolls under bridges, that kind of thing. Mm. And, um, and so that one really sort of fascinated me because it was one of the first I looked into and I found a number of other witnesses who'd seen this over the years. And I found a lot of other weird stuff was going on right around the bridge as well, like um, really intriguing UFO encounters, um, ghostly reports, all sorts of strange stuff, as if the area itself was a magnet for weirdness. So uh, that's um, that's sort of one of my favourites because, you know, it's one that I have sort of a lot of memories of and going out there and, and investigating it. Hmm. <laughs> well, now, there is a creature that you write about that I've never heard of, uh, and forgive me if I pronounce it wrong, but I believe it's the wyvern or the wyvern. The wyvern, uh, yeah. The wyvern, okay. Uh, yeah. So I've never heard about this creature before. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Well, yeah, I mean, th- again, you know, this is one of the ones I wanted to include in the book because, you know, you just made the point for me that not many people, <laughs> you know, know about it. <laughs> but these are the stories of the wyvern. They actually go back to, chiefly at least, North Wales, where there's like a long history of these strange creatures. Now, for the most part, the wyvern is sort of like a, a Welsh equivalent of the Loch Ness Monster. Not so much in terms of, you know, what it looks like, because most people report the Ness is just sort of having a humpback and a long neck. But the, the wyverns, to get back to one of your earlier questions, actually looked eerily like dragons. Um, they were described as sort of, um, well, they like reptiles. There was no doubt they were sort of reptiles. And reportedly had these sort of huge wings which sort of bordered on the way a bat's wings look you know they weren't feathery or anything like that Mm, Um, and had sort of a a large powerful tail and the tail itself had this powerful sting you know kind of like a like an insect would sting you you know like a bee or a wasp or whatever and um there's actually one famous lake or one story concerning a specific lake in Wales called Sinwich Lake. And um, that's sort of one of the most famous uh, Welsh lake monsters, the wyvern of uh, Sinwich Lake. And and again, you know, the number of people claim to have seen it. This is sort of going back centuries ago. We're not talking about people claiming to have seen it, you know, in the last 20, 30 years or thereabouts. Um, but... You know, we're talking about tales going back five, six hundred years. But, you know, enough was written about it in various ancient manuscripts and scrolls and that kind of thing to suggest that people really did see something in the lake. And um, then it did kind of have these sort of reptilian qualities. So, um, you know, unfortunately, we'll probably never really know what the animal was. But um, certainly the, the people of that era and that area were absolutely convinced, you know, they'd seen this thing. Mm. So now this is the ghost hunter side of me coming out here. In all of the cases, especially the modern ones, did you ever think that maybe uh, these people were being exposed to massive amounts of electromagnetic energy, any type of uh, radiation poisoning, anything like that, that would make them hallucinate? Well, I mean, that's an interesting theory. I mean, there are some cases where there's no doubt the person was in sort of like an altered state of mind. Um, For example, um, 
again, not too far from where I lived in, in England as a kid and a teenager, there's a, a large area of forest called the Cannock Chase. And Cannock Chase has this huge communications tower on it, um, which basically, you know, covers much of the country for, for signals, for cell phones and landlines and things like that. Mm. And there have been a lot of weird reports in the area of the woods, I mean, this huge tower literally stands in the middle of the forest. That's how, you know, it's just built in the middle of the forest. And there have been a lot of reports of strange creatures around the, um, the, the, the tower itself. Sightings of werewolf-type animals and, and Bigfoot-type creatures. And in a lot of the cases, the witness did feel it's sort of like an altered state, as if time had stood still and there was no sound, you know, everything was eerily quiet. And they kind of felt like they were in a dreamlike state. And several of them actually said, you know, they weren't sure if they'd actually seen a real creature or if there was some sort of weird mirage or hallucination going on. Of course, the big question is, well, if that is the case, how does that happen? But I've got a few like that. And some other ones, for example, um, you know, where people are, again, out in the woods and they suddenly get this sense of being watched by something and, uh, you know, a creature, again, very often in the UK, like a werewolf-type animal, will loom into view. But again, it's almost, several have said that, almost like it was stage-managed, like it was sort of like a performance art for the witness. You know, it wasn't um, a real event. Um, But there are other cases. I mean, like, for example, um, infrasound. Infrasound is this very low frequency sound that animals like whales and elephants use to communicate across literally hundreds well uh, up to around about 90 or 100 miles they can resonate you know this infrasound and other animals of their breed will pick it up but with people uh, directed and targeted infrasound can actually cause audible and visual hallucinations can make you feel sort of panicky and light-headed as if you're in the throes of like a panic attack or something like that and cases like that have been reported in things like Bigfoot and Dogman type encounters that's to say it's as if some sort of phenomenon like infrasound may actually provoke the encounter but of course the big thing is you know are the creatures causing it or are the creatures a byproduct of something else targeting a person with infrasound mm-hmm. <clears throat> well now it's interesting that you bring up you know a couple of those cases in which people may or may not have seen something and again you know a lot of the not a lot but some of the stuff just and I really have brought up because we've we just questioned it but is there a possibility then that these creatures aren't actually on this earth with us but are just simply interdimensional beings uh, spirits if you will or some people believe, like Sasquatch, for example, are aliens, uh, and that these creatures aren't necessarily uh, physical creatures at all, but just spiritual beings that happen to present themselves at any given time. Yeah, no, I actually agree with you. I, I do think there's a lot of solid evidence um, to suggest that many of these so-called cryptids, which, you know, they may well be animals in the literal sense, but I think they're only sort of temporarily in, in our reality. And I actually class Bigfoot in that category, although a lot of, you know, I've got a lot of friends in cryptozoology where, you know, we just, they agree to disagree with me. (laughs) We're able to stay friends, but sometimes it gets heated. But, you know, there are a lot of reports of Bigfoot sort of vanishing in a flash of light. Um, 
uh, affecting electronic equipment um, and seemingly just have the, having the ability to vanish. You know, they're gone in a second. And there are some cases where they do actually sound more sort of spectral, where people claimed they were absolutely sure they'd shot these things, you know, right. at point-blank range, mm -hmm. only to have no effect, and again, for the animals to vanish. So I think, you know, if Bigfoot was just an unknown North American ape, and there were thousands of them roaming around the U.S., which the evidence seems to suggest, we would surely have caught, captured, or killed one. You know, we talk, we're not talking about things the size of, like, a blackbird or a squirrel. We're talking about eight-foot-tall creatures, and we can't even catch or kill one. Right, so right. I think the reason is that um, the only answer, for me at least, is that they're only temporarily in our reality. And there are a lot of other ones that fall into that category. For example... There's a long history in the UK, which I talk about in a section in the book as well, of so-called phantom black dogs, one of which inspired Arthur Conan Doyle to write The Hand of the Baskervilles. He actually based it on an ancient British legend of one of these so-called hellhounds, which were sort of like huge black dogs with fiery red eyes. And there's a lot of reports of those where people have been walking down ancient pathways and crossroads late at night, and they suddenly heard this padding and breathing behind them. And there's this large black dog with red eyes, and sometimes it'll pass by them, and sometimes it'll stop and sort of eerily stare at them. And according to the legends, you know, sometimes these things were helpful, but on other occasions, to see one and that, you know, death was imminent or tragedy was imminent for somebody. Um, but in many of these cases, the black dogs would just vanish. You know, they wouldn't sort of vanish in terms of, you know, running into the woods and getting lost in the trees, but literally vanish from view. So, you know, we, we actually do get a lot of cases like that, really. Well, now, folks, we are going to take our second and last break of the evening here. We are talking to Nick Redfern on his book, The Monster Book. We will be right back after Justin's Paranormal Headlines. And now, Paratruth Radio's Paranormal Headlines. What's going on, Parafans? Justin here with your Paranormal Headlines. And these headlines are from unexplainedmysteries.com. Giant UFO appears over a village in Malaysia. Dubious footage of a gigantic disc-shaped object filmed in Malaysia has gone viral online this week. The video, which looks like something out of the 1996 science fiction blockbuster Independence Day, shows a large disc hovering over a village in the Kuala Kray district of Malaysia before looping around and performing a much slower pass over the area while tilted onto its side. The footage has since gone viral on social media in Malaysia and has caused such a stir that local police have reportedly found it necessary to issue a statement calling for everyone to remain calm. Elsewhere, however, the UFO, which has been widely dismissed as a hoax, is thought to be more the product of computer graphic software than it is genuine evidence of extraterrestrial visitors. Girl's tongue is so long she can lick her eye. Contortionist Gurkari Bracco's monstrous four-inch tongue has gained quite a following on social media. The 20-year-old who is from Florida has such an extraordinarily long tongue that she is able to bring it up to her face to lick her own eyeball and even the tip of her own nose. 
Videos of her tongue-stretching feats have been viewed thousands of times on YouTube, and with a tongue measuring four inches in length, she could soon earn herself a place in the record books. The current record holder, 26-year-old Nick Stoberry from California, has a 3.97-inch tongue. And this has been Justin with your Paranormal Headlines. This was a segment of Parachute Radio's Paranormal Headlines. What's up, folks? Welcome back to Paratruth Radio. My name is Eric. And I'm Justin. And we are speaking with Nick Redfern on his book, The Monster Book. Now, Nick, it is unfortunate that we are at the end of the show here, but what we would like to do is give you a little time to tell people where they can find you, where they can find your book, and, of course, any other information you'd like to give, even if you'd like to plug some other uh, works that you have, feel free. The floor is yours. All right, cool, thanks. Well, uh, all my books are available on Amazon, and uh, many of them you can get off the shelves in Barnes & Noble as well, including the new one, The Monster Book. And uh, people can reach me at my blog, which is Nick Redfern Fortean, which is F-O-R-T-E-A-N, nickredfernfortean.blogspot.com, or just type me in at Facebook, uh, my Twitter account's Nick Redfern UFO. So, you know, I'm sort of widely contactable, if contactable's a real word. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, um, as far as one of the other things I've got coming up, coincidentally, um, next week, I've got uh, another new book out, a crypto book on the Loch Ness Monster. It's called Nessie. But it actually covers the the one area that most researchers have shied away from, but which we've covered quite a bit tonight, and that's sort of the paranormal aspects of the Loch Ness Monster story. And I talk about how a lot of the witnesses actually haven't described the same type of creature. Some have described something looking like a giant frog. Others have described something like a plesiosaur or a giant eel. One even said they saw something with tusks. And what's interesting is that sort of five, six hundred years ago, the local Scottish people had a tradition of a strange creature in Loch Ness known as a Kelpie. And the Kelpies were shapeshifters. So it actually sounds like we've still got shapeshifters in Loch Ness and there's been UFO sightings at the lock, really weird men in black encounters, synchronicities reported by Loch Ness monster seekers and all sorts of weird stuff. So in, in other words, it's a full history of the Loch Ness monster, but instead of just going over all the old cases, it, it makes a case for the, the supernatural element of Nessie. Awesome. No, that sounds awesome. All right, Nick. So thank you so much for coming on again, and I am looking forward to for the new book. And uh, once that is out, I will be more than happy to get you on again. But until then, have a good night, and good luck with the new book. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. Great. All right, folks. That was Nick Redfern, author of the monster book, uh, Creatures, Beasts, and Fiends of Nature. Awesome guest. He was... A very good guest when we had him on as uh, on the Secret Society's books that he did, mm-hmm. and I would love to have him on again for the Nessie book because 
that's one you and I have uh, actually done a show on, and you know we talked mm-hmm. about Leviathan being a sea monster, and that these creatures might actually still exist. But yeah. it's interesting that he brings up that it might be a shape shifting creature or right. a, a paranormal, paranormal or creature. creature, which is it is it is interesting because that is something that you and I not of us had even thought about, you know, crossing sister topic, uh, and it's never been brought up on our show before, right? Whether or not it even really is there physically, you know, we always just assumed, yeah, you know, it might be, why not? We see, you know, the, the oceans are deep, so right, definitely interesting. I look forward to getting back on with that and reading that book. So I'm with you. <laughs> so um, that's all we got for the monster book this week, guys. Uh, if you want to check out Nick Redfern, check out his website. It'll be in the show notes below. But he had also said it before we let him go. Uh, awesome, awesome guy. And oddly enough, in two weeks back to back, we will have an English guy on our show, Nick Redfern, <laughs> this week. Next week, uh, we're going to be talking to uh, Richard Estep, which he's been on the show a couple of times mm-hmm. now, and his co author, Cammie Anderson, to talk about the book, The Haunting of Asylum 49. And that was actually in his book, The Most Haunted Hospitals uh, of the U.S. or of the world. I can't remember which one it was. Uh, But they had actually found so much phenomenon just in this specific uh, hospital that they did an actual whole book on it. So it'll be awesome to talk to them. And I know you guys love the ghost stuff, so we're indulging. (laughs) You guys have the ghosts. On uh, any final thoughts from you? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> so um, next week, Richard Estep and Cami Anderson. Week after that, uh, I'll throw this out there just because it's something that you kind of have to think about and do some research on. Eric and I will be doing a episode on the conspiracy theory on the dark side of the moon, mm-hmm. and not the Transformers movie. <laughs> so there could be transformers on the moon. Could be. Could be. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and the revealed is coming up sooner than later. So I'm looking forward to that. And, uh, you know, I'm getting closer to actually starting the Vibrant Wings Publishing Company and just publishing my book myself. So look forward yeah. to all that as well, guys. Yeah. And actually, now that now that you brought it up, I do have something to say. Uh, in t- two weeks, I think, two or three weeks, uh, the university down here in Lynchburg is going to Liberty is going to be holding a film festival. So, for those of you within the Virginia area, uh, feel free to come to that film festival. The revealed will be shown there. There's also an award ceremony from nine to eleven a.m. On Friday, the actually let me look it up here real quick because I can tell you the exact day. Uh, oops, August, September. Uh, that is Friday, September sixteenth, from nine a.m. to eleven a.m. There'll be an award ceremony, if you will, uh, in which they pass out awards to different films uh, based on both uh, audience reviews as well as the reviews of the professors there as well. Judges. Um, so, yeah, the judges. Um, so we'll see. You know, maybe, hopefully, the revealed will come home with 
an award, uh, which would be cool. Fingers crossed so, for you. <laughs> fingers crossed. So uh, um, in all these festivals, are people allowed to come and watch, or is it some of them just the judges watch the, the film? No. Uh, for all the ones that I'm entered in, uh, anyone can come. Uh, at the moment, I don't have no one has gotten me back to me yet. It's going to be a little while. I think November, I think, is the first one that I'll actually hear back from. Okay. Uh, regarding whether or not I'm accepted, so we'll see. Uh, but you know, I'll keep you guys posted as time comes. You know, it's going to be a slow process, but yeah, the, a process nonetheless. So we'll see. But yeah, first festival will be the Liberty University Film Festival. It's pretty cool. There's going to be uh, a few guests there, professionals within the film industry. So if you're interested in film and you want to know more about it, come check it out. These are people uh, that have worked in it for a long time. Some of them are pretty well known. Uh, and then you can see all the films that have been done uh, last year. Not only mine, but a couple others that I've worked on. Uh, and it's just a good time, you know. So it's the weekend. I think it's actually... Thursday, September 15th until the 17th, I believe. I think it's Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So yeah, come check it out, folks. Alright, folks. Until next week where we will see you same time, same channel. My name is Justin. And I'm Eric. Peace. If you enjoyed this episode of Paratruth Radio and you would like to listen to it again or are interested in listening to any of our past episodes, then you can listen to them on HD at our website, paratruthradio.com. And you can also find us at Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, iTunes, Spreaker, and YouTube. And of course, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for brand new updates of our show every day. of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.